Heavenly Father, as we open your word to us, a word of uh, challenge, but also a word of great comfort and grace. We pray that you would speak to our minds and our hearts. We pray that you would show us the truth of your word and show us how it applies to our lives and show us the beauty and the majesty of Christ as we open this word together. I pray that you would be with me and everyone here as we unpack this passage. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, anybody here off the top of their head know how much money was spent in the 2016 presidential campaign? Anybody know? Anybody have a guess? Not quite trillions. Good guess. But if you start it with a B, you're right, okay? So combined, um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump uh, raised and spent just under, um, sorry, I have the number, just, just about $1.8 billion, okay? But that's actually low because Hillary raised $1.2 billion and Trump only had to do $650 million because he had this whole, like, business infrastructure that he could use already. He had the private jet and the resorts to host, you know, his campaigns and stuff like that. Um, but it takes about a billion bucks these days to run for president. Okay, about a billion will get you at least in the game to run for president, which sounds crazy when you say it, right? I mean, that sounds like a ton of money. But then when you start to think about everything that goes into running for president and what, you, what the position that you're in when you become president, well, a billion dollars might actually start to make sense after a little while. I mean, think about what these guys are trying to accomplish. They're, they're trying to get the majority of voting America to be on their side, to be their followers, right? So they have to capture the hearts and the minds of hundreds of millions of people. Uh, they know that their reward is power and influence, notoriety and fame, and the possibility to make changes that positively affect millions of Americans, potentially, and even billions of people around the world. Um, what's a billion bucks? for a chance like that, right? And I was thinking about this the other day, and just consider being their campaign manager. I mean, what an awful job. Can you imagine trying to run and organize a billion-dollar presidential campaign? I mean, how stressful that would be. Think of what these guys have to do. They're making strategic decisions every, every second, constantly trying to figure out how to position themselves. They're scheduling their candidate down to the minute, arranging who that candidate meets with, what they say, how they sell their vision. Uh, they're budgeting um, ad time and social media presence, travel efficiency. They're dialing in caucus votes and you know, very like strategically going county by county around the entire country. They're prepping for debates, public appearances. They're staying on brand and on message all the time. The sheer logistics of running for president would kill me. It would probably kill most of us in this room. Um, the kind of time and intensity of focus that it takes to become president. Now consider Jesus for a minute, all right? Imagine if you were asked to be Jesus's campaign manager, all right? What's your strategy? What's your plan? He shows up in the world, but here's the thing. He says, thanks for coming on board. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad you're here to help me with my campaign, but I actually don't want to just sit in the Oval Office for four years, bigger ambitions than that. Here's what I want, and this is what I want you to help me figure out how to do. 2,000 years after I've died, I want 2.2 billion followers around the world. Okay, I don't just want 40 
6% of Americans to vote for me and to follow me. I actually want people from every tongue, tribe, nation in the entire planet to claim me as their savior and to worship me as their king. All right? I want my words and my mission translated into every known language, and I want my message to be the single most culturally impactful thing in the world. Now what's your plan? Okay? You're the campaign manager for Jesus. What do you do? What is your strategy? What is your plan? What's your agenda for him? How would you schedule his time? What kind of people would he meet with if you were in charge? What would he say to them? to pitch his vision, to get a following going. Uh, And how much money would it cost? How much would you have to raise if that was Jesus' ambitions? If you were in charge, how would you plan to extend Jesus' mission, and what would your method be? Well, you may not have noticed it, but that's actually what our passage this morning is about. The passage we just read, this little dinner party, that Jesus goes to with Levi and some other tax collectors and some Pharisees, Jesus is actually answering these very same questions, and he's answering them in a very different way than I think you and I would answer them, okay? Uh, A group of men, he's at a dinner party, and a group of men ask Jesus, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? At this meal, and his reply to this one question Jesus is actually showing us his method. He's showing us his plan, his strategy to get his word, his message, his mission out. And he's showing us what that mission is. He shows us how he plans to get the message across and what the heart of his message really is. So I want to look at both parts of this question this morning. Why does Jesus eat and drink? And why does he do it with tax collectors and sinners? And I think what we're going to see is that in his answer to those two parts of the question, we get to the very heart of his method and to the very heart of his mission, all right? Why this meal? Why this guest list? So first, why this meal? In this scene, uh, we see that the word of Jesus extends to a man named Levi. He meets Levi, and he asks Levi to follow him. Levi's a tax collector, and we actually learn from the other Gospels that this man, Levi, Uh, becomes Matthew, changes his name to Matthew, and he becomes one of Jesus' 12 disciples, and he actually writes the first book of the New Testament. Okay, so Levi is the Matthew who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. So this tax collector is transformed, all right, in following Jesus. And when he meets him and he follows Jesus, the first thing that we see is what does he do? He throws a party, right? I mean, I met Jesus, and I'm now following Jesus, this deserves a party. Everybody come over, okay? All my buddies come over. Yeah, I know, I I run with a rough crowd, but come on over anyway. Jesus is a good guy. I want you to meet him. So he throws a party, and he invites Jesus to the dinner also, and Jesus goes to eat with him. Why does Jesus go to eat with Levi? Seems like a silly question at first, but when you start to unpack it, it's worth thinking about. Why does Jesus go to this dinner party? Why does Jesus go to this meal at all? Um, food is one of the most basic common denominators we all share. I mean, Jesus ate thousands of meals, just like you and I. Uh, This is just what people do. In fact, eating is so common, we actually don't spend a lot of time thinking about how meaningful it really is. But that's exactly the point. Something that we do three times a day, at least, 
I usually throw in one more just for good measure, you know, late at night, bowl of cereal maybe, or a little cheese, whatever. Um, so it's something we do at least three times a day that takes up a substantial amount of our budget and is shared with people all over the world all the time, that's filled with importance. It feels very mundane. It feels very normal. But when you think about how much food really integrates into our entire life, it's worth thinking about. And the Bible actually places a lot of importance on eating. For example, how would you, if you again, if you were in charge, you're Jesus' campaign manager, how would you finish this sentence? Um, the Son of Man came to do what? The Son of Man came to do miracles, maybe? Son of Man came to forgive. The Son of Man came to teach great moral lessons about what it means to live as a human. The Son of Man came to die on a cross. I bet, a lot, I bet we could fill that in with a lot of true things. Okay, the, the, the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels finish that exact sentence in three ways. All right? Here are the three ways that the Bible says, uh, or fills in that blank. The Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the key verse in Mark. We're going to get to that. It's in chapter 10. Luke says this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Okay, both of those are probably things we would have filled in. Here's the third one. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Okay? In Luke 7, verse 34. Now, of the top three things Jesus came to do, he came to seek and save the lost, he came to be a ransom for sinners, and he came to eat and drink. Would we put that in the top three? The Bible did. Why? Why? The first two explain why Jesus came, his purpose, okay? This is what his mission is about. The third one, Jesus came eating and drinking, I think it describes his method. It describes his plan. It describes his strategy for getting his message out to the world. When God arrives as a human being, when he arrives to share the word, the saving, transformative word of grace and hope, to present good news He doesn't get a professorship at an elite university, right? He doesn't um, uh, publish books. He doesn't make political stump speeches. He doesn't hire a publicist or uh, events coordinator. He doesn't even raise a billion bucks. He pretty much just eats with people, okay? That's his strategy to change the world. In other words, meals are the method of Jesus. This is how he gets the word out. This is how he establishes his church, This is how he gathers a small following for three years before he was killed, and that's how his following literally changed the world. Jesus ate with people, and then his people ate with more people, and those people ate with more people, and 2,000 years later, there are 2.2 billion people who claim to follow Jesus in this world. That is a mission strategy I can get behind, okay? Let's all just agree on that. We can get on board with eating and drinking with people. Tim Chester, uh, a pastor in England that I've come to really appreciate, wrote a book called A Meal with Jesus. Uh, I'd recommend it. A lot of the best points in this sermon are straight out of this book, so not coming up with anything original here, but uh, Tim Chester, he wrote this in the book. Jesus was a party animal, His mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Jesus was so committed to this particular mission strategy, this method of extending his word to people, that one theologian said this, 
Um, in the Gospels, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. He literally eats his way through the Gospels. Okay? So, Jesus ate some meals. So what? What do we do with this? What does this have to do with us? First, I want us to notice this. um, That Jesus' method, his strategy, his plan, eating meals, it's not just the sort of canvas for him to get his message across. His method is is the message, okay? His method, his eating with people, is the message that he wants to get across. What do I mean? Um, How many of you guys remember that movie, No Country for Old Men? One best picture in 2007, great movie, dark movie, but a great movie, okay? Coen Brothers take a Cormac McCarthy novel, turn it into a movie, and this movie is about, I mean, it's violent, it's, it's, it's asking questions about, is there meaning in, in our world? Is there a purpose for our lives? And it's pretty bleak, okay? I mean, the answer is sort of no. The answer is sort of like, we live in an empty moral universe. I mean, that's basically what the movie is talking about. Um, but the way they communicate that message um, is the method that they use to make the film. So when you go back through and watch the movie, if you ever watch it again, um, notice the landscape. There's almost no life. It's set in East Texas. It's an empty landscape, okay? Oh, that, wasn't a, that wasn't a dig on Texas. This is just fact. I'm not, I'm not after Texans, man. I love Texans. Uh, my family lives in Texas, some of them. Um, so it's set in East Texas. It's a very bleak landscape. There might be two trees in the whole movie, okay? So the emptiness of the landscape is the message. Is the, the method of the film is the message of the film. And most unique, there's not a single song in the whole movie. Two and a half hours, no music. Can you imagine watching a, a movie for two and a half hours? There's not a, single, uh, there's not a single song in the background. So you have an empty landscape. You have an empty musical score. The method that they use to make the movie is the message of the movie. We live in an empty moral universe, okay? Jesus is doing the exact same thing, except the exact opposite. So he, he, as he gathers to eat meals with people... His method of spreading his message is the message. Food is stuff, okay? Food is substance. Food is life. Food brings life. It brings people together. It unites people. This is the message Jesus came to share. A meal is not just ideas, okay? It's not just theories. There's an event that happens. No meal is ever quite the same as another one. You have different people in the room, different food, different conversations, different vibe. It's unique It's a historical event. The message of Jesus is not primarily, this is important, the message, Christianity is not primarily a new teaching about what human life is about, okay? It's not a new idea. Most of what Jesus said had been said before by great moral teachers, okay? And most of what he said will have been said again by others after him. The teachings, while they're true, and, and Jesus um, is explaining to us what a full, rich life looks like. They're not totally unique. What is totally unique about Christianity are the events and the facts and the substance of Jesus' life. Okay? Christianity isn't first a teaching or an idea. Christianity is first a series of events. God became man, lived a perfect life, was crucified, and was resurrected. That's the heart of Christianity. Those aren't ideas so much as historical realities, okay? So if you buy into the teachings of Christianity, that's a great thing. 
But what makes you a Christian, what makes you a follower of Jesus, is if you believe the historical events and the facts and the substance of Jesus' life applies to you, okay? That they're transferred to you, almost like a meal, right? Almost like food. That what he did becomes yours. It gets ingested into your life, and it becomes yours. It's totally unique among all religions and philosophies in the world. So Jesus' meals weren't just meals. They were enacted grace, community, mission. He's not just talking while he's eating. He's communicating by eating. He's bringing his family and his community together. So knowing how central meals were for Jesus and what he's doing with his followers as they get together, uh, I think could shape our behavior as well. Again, um, I'm a fan of this mission strategy, right? Like if the plan is just get together and eat, I'm in. Let's do that. Um, this, is, uh, this is Tim Chester again. He wrote this. We can make community and mission sound like specialized activities that belong to experts, right? Some people have a vested interest in doing this because it makes them feel special or extraordinary. Or we focus on dynamic personalities who can hold an audience and lead a movement. Some push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians. He writes this. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's not complicated, okay? True, it's not always easy. It involves people invading your space or going to places where you don't feel comfortable, but it's not complicated. If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, you will be building up the Christian community and reaching out in mission. Our mission is not rocket science, right? It's not complicated. If you love Jesus and you invite other people into your life around a shared meal, around a shared experience, that's how the kingdom of God grows. That's how the, the infection of grace spreads through the world. Uh, one of my friends put it this way, um, or I, I, should, I should say, I would encourage you to be liberal with your dining habits. One of my friends put it this way. He said, eat promiscuously, all right? Uh, have anybody over, have everybody over, because this is how the mission of God gets extended. So this answers the first part of the Pharisees' question. Why do you eat and drink? Food is Jesus' embodied strategy to extend his kingdom. It's the method of the mission of Jesus. What about the second part? What about the guest list? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, I think this gets to the very heart of his mission. Why this guest list? Because all of life is junior high. Now, hang with me for a second. A friend of mine used to say that we're all, we used to do youth ministry together and uh, this buddy of mine, and we'd work with junior high kids, and he said to me one time, you know what? We're all junior hires at heart. We just get better at hiding it as we grow older, okay? There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. I mean, you remember the junior high lunchroom, right? Some of you do. So talk about the worst place on earth, all right? Any normal person can admit that those two to three years in junior high They're just the worst. I mean, they're the worst. You're figuring out who you are. You don't know where you fit in. Everything's awkward. Uh, They're the worst time in life, and everything is crystallized in the lunchroom. You get your plastic tray. Mine was red. You get a little weird food, and as you step out of the lunch line, uh, you enter the most vulnerable moment in your day and in your life, right? The question going through your head is you're just a little kid, you got your red lunch tray with weird food on it, and the only thing you want is a place to sit 
You just want a place where you know you belong, right? A table where you know you're okay. You're just a little kid. I mean, I'm 34 years old, and even talking about it now makes me feel insecure, right? I want everybody to go there in their mind. We're all that insecure little kid holding a red lunch tray, trying to figure out where to sit. Now, technically, you can sit anywhere, but you know you can't just sit anywhere, right? There is um, there's a system, and this system was never written down, and no one ever talked about it, but everybody understood it. And it wasn't spoken out loud, but the lunchroom defined junior high, the lunch table organized society, all right? Who you were with at the lunch table was a boundary marker of where you belonged. You could sit there, but you kind of didn't want to. You really wanted to sit there, but you're not sure you could. There's a system here, and the lunch table was the boundary marker. It said where you belonged and who you belonged with. It gave you a place. Having a crew, having a place to belong was one of the most important things in junior high. And I would argue that's still true, isn't it? I mean, where do you belong? Having a place to belong. We're all junior hires. We just get better at hiding it, okay? Where, where do you belong? Who is your crew? Where are you safe? And meals um, in junior high define that. And actually, that's been true for much longer than just the junior high years. In the ancient Near East, at the time that Jesus walked around on the earth, just like junior high, meals were boundary markers. Okay, meals told you who you belonged with, who you were united to, who you could connect with, and when, and, and when you were on the outside or the inside. One theologian wrote this. It'd be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the culture of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Meal times were far more than occasion for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating with another person, became a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness towards anyone with whom you'd shared a table was particularly reprehensible reprehensible in this culture. And on the other hand, when people were estranged, do you know what brought them together? Meals. There were moments of reconciliation, and there were moments of grace in the ancient Near East. Who you could eat with was a boundary marker of whether or not you belonged. And so that's why the guest list at this party is so world-changing, all right? Verses 15 and 16. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors. There's two groups at this feast. The tax collectors on the one hand, the Pharisees and the scribes on the other. Now, tax collectors, at this time in history, they were a sleazy bunch. Um, they were basically uh, you know, ethnic Jews who were working for the foreign government, for the Romans. So they would go around and collect taxes from their own people to pay to the foreign oppressors. But that wasn't even the worst part. The worst part was they got rich off this. Okay, They could collect as much taxes as they wanted. If, if they only owed 15% to the Romans, they could go and take 25% from their neighbors and family and get rich off the rest. The Romans didn't care. They got their cut. So these were like traitors to their own people. The Romans just used them, and their own people despised them, okay? These guys were the worst. These guys were the worst. Sleazeballs, all right? Um, tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people, and none 
despise them more than the Pharisees, who were the self-appointed keeper, keepers of the rules within the Jewish community. We've already met the scribes in Mark. This is the first mention of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes were on the same team, but the scribes were sort of like the hot shots, you know? They were like the uh, academic, political, power broker guys. The Pharisees were just regular old church folk, but they were the ones who knew they had it together and knew the rest of the people didn't, okay? Uh, they set the boundary markers, and they knew they were on the inside, and they knew who was on the outside. And so, consider what the Pharisees saw when they walked into this dinner party. Okay? Consider what they understood was happening when Jesus sat down with the sleaziest of the people in their community. Remember, eating is how you show that you're united to someone. Jesus is united to the enemies of God's people. Jesus must be uh, you know, against God himself, yet Jesus claims to be God. Jesus must be the worst kind of liar there is. What's wrong with this guy? That's what they see immediately when they walk into this dinner party. And it actually makes perfect sense. I mean, the logic is tight if you follow it out. It's very logical. The problem is the gospel is not illogical, but it's more than logic. Okay, the gospel kind of overrides the logical things that we think are the way the world should work. Grace, as it turns out, turns this whole system upside down. See, on the views that the Pharisees were working from, on the old view uncleanliness is contagious. So when Jesus walks into that room with sinners, Jesus is, is getting, is, is getting um, unclean from them. All right? He's receiving their sin. He's receiving their uncleanliness. By uniting the sinners and tax collectors, he's making himself unclean before their very eyes. But what they didn't understand is that with Jesus, something entirely new is going on, a whole new kind of kingdom with all new kinds of rules, had arrived in the world. And instead of um, uncleanliness being contagious and um, sin being contagious, now Jesus' cleanliness was contagious. His holiness was spreading to those who were sinners on the outside. He spreads salvation. Grace is contagious holiness. And Jesus, by sitting down with these men and women, is infecting the world with his grace through his own death, life, and resurrection. Jesus isn't changing the system because it's wrong. He's not saying righteousness and holiness don't matter, but he's fulfilling the old system and applying it to everyone who can't fulfill it on their own. And here's the thing, that only people who know they can't fulfill that system of righteousness on their own are ever going to be attracted to this thing that Jesus offers. Grace is really only lovely and beautiful when you know what side of the boundary marker you're on and you know you're on the wrong side of it, right? So these guys, these Pharisees, they're never going to think Jesus is lovely and beautiful and gracious because they think they can already do it on their own. But someone like a tax collector or some of the other unsavory types that Jesus tends to eat with, they're drawn to him because they know which side of the boundary marker they're on and they know they need someone to make them whole. So Jesus says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. What he's saying is the only thing that's required to be infected with the very holiness and wholeness of God is to acknowledge you need the wholeness and holiness of God. On Jesus' kingdom, the gospel of grace, the only thing you need to get in is need itself. 
The only thing you need is need. And then Jesus says, come on, come to the feast. Jesus provides the rest, the perfect physician, the perfect savior. Jesus promises that as we get to him in our need and our brokenness, he will always respond with salvation and hope. All right, last illustration, close us out here. How many of, this is another movie one. We're going movies today. How many have seen uh, the film Little Miss Sunshine? Remember that one? It's kind of quirky, funny, weird. I'd recommend it. It's good. Okay, so let me give you the, the setting here. Um, Little Miss Sunshine is about a girl named Olive, and she is trying to win a beauty pageant. The problem is she's not going to win that beauty pageant, okay? I mean, she's a sweetheart, but she's awkward. She's got big old glasses, right? And she comes from a strange family. There's a scene in the movie when the dad, who's a failed motivational speaker, which is hilarious, and he pretty much just gives speeches to his own family now, um, is giving a speech to his family, and he's saying there are two kinds of people in the world. There are winners and there are losers, and on the word losers, the camera pans and includes the whole family sitting in the room, okay? So you've got the foul-mouthed grandpa, you've got the downtrodden mom, you've got the failed motivational speaker dad, you've got this poor girl who's just not going to win the beauty pageant, but man, she's going. Uh, she gets in by default. I think someone else like dropped out, and so she accidentally got into the beauty pageant. Um, and then you've got the teenage son who's taken a vow of silence and doesn't speak anymore. Okay, so the camera pans over this family of losers. And to get to the pageant, the whole family piles into a VW van, which itself is dysfunctional. Once it stops, you can't get it started again. So they got it started, and they just have to keep rolling no matter what happens, all the way to the beauty pageant. But in one scene, they find that they've left the gas station, and um, Olive isn't in the van with them. Okay, So they get a few miles down the road, and they realize Olive isn't there. So they turn around, and they come back into the scene, or they come back to the gas station, and again, in the frame, this old VW dysfunctional van slowly rolls across the screen, and all of it's just standing there. She runs along the side of the van, and they pull her in because it can't stop, otherwise it won't start again. And then it rolls off the other side of the screen, and you just see it going off into the distance. And, in the, and a, a couple of moments later, the dad who's driving uh, just yells, no one gets left behind. No one gets left behind. And at the end of the film, these two worlds collide, okay? You've got the manicured, rehearsed, respectable uh, girls and families that are in the beauty pageant, but they're also judgmental, they're envious, and they're an arrogant group of winners, okay? They're there because they've actually won. They're there because based on their performance so far, they belong to be there. And then they come into contact with this highly dysfunctional, uh, unsuccessful, uncool, awkward, failed motivational speakers, but loyal to one another, honest, needy. They're the family, okay? So the two worlds that collide at the end of this film are the performers and the family. And that's exactly the two groups that have collided at Levi's dinner party. You've got the religious performers who believe they belong to be there, and then you've got those that Jesus has invited into his family. As dysfunctional as they are, as needy as they are, as awkward as they are, those who thought they could perform looked down in judgment with those who knew that they could not. But Jesus came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came not for the performers, but for those who knew they need the grace 
that he offers. And as dysfunctional and broken as God's family is, okay, like we are that VW van, all right? I mean, we've got our problems, we've got our issues. The church across the world is dysfunctional. It's got its problems, but it's filled with those who know that they need, who are loyal to each other, who leave no one behind, and know that they need to be included in God's family to receive the love that they need. Our, our rallying cry is the same as theirs. Leave no one behind, right? Jesus has invited you to his feast and to his family, and he's done this on the basis of his life, death, and resurrection, on the basis of his contagious holiness, not ours. The only thing that can keep you from his family is thinking you deserve to be there in the first place. But if, like Levi and the other sinners and tax collectors and dysfunctional, awkward, needy people that comprise God's family, you know you're in need, this is your family, all right? If you know you're in need, this is your family. There will always be a place for you at this table. There will always be a place for you in God's family, and no one gets left behind. That is the mission of Jesus, and his method is a table, all right? We're going to get there in a second. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for going to dinner with people like us. Thanks for inviting us to your table and including us in your family. We don't deserve to be there. Uh, We don't bring anything to the family. We don't bring expertise or wisdom or insight that you don't already have, Jesus. We're there because you've invited us and because we know we need it and because you love us. Thank you for that gospel of grace And thank you for that kingdom of grace that is extending even now in this world. We ask that you would use this church and the people here to continue to extend that invitation to more and more people. We ask these things in your name. Amen.